0: Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through twelve thirty one twenty four. 24 Excludes tax. Must update rewards. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes... Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go!
1: From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're digging into the permafrost to find out what's emerging from the melting ice. According to a couple of recent papers, there could be some pretty deadly viruses out there buried in the planet's coldest places and these regions melt rapidly as a result of climate change, there is concern that these viruses could trigger an epidemic or even a pandemic. To understand the risk and what's happening to the microbes that live in the polar regions as they undergo extreme climate change, I'm joined by Dr. Arwin Edwards, a microbiologist from Aberystwyth University who investigates how these ecosystems affect the health of the planet. The reason... I kind of wanted to dig into this subject is that uh, there's been a number of headlines popping up in the latter half of this year made from uh, a couple of studies that warned about the threat of uh, what they called zombie viruses in the Arctic. So you're a microbiologist, and I wanted to get kind of a a local, (laughs) I suppose, a person, someone from the UK, because these were Canadians and and French uh, scientists published the the study, what, what's the concern around these viruses?
0: So the concern is that as the Arctic is changing very rapidly, it's warming, um, some people might say it's going through a meltdown, that means that things that have been stored in deep frozen environments in the Arctic, so uh, frozen ground, in particular permafrost, which can be frozen for hundreds of thousands of years, or glaciers and ice sheets, such as the Greenland ice sheet, the only ice sheet in the Arctic, they are being melted. And things that are stored in that deep freezer emerge on the surface into a a warmed environment and the concern that's posed by a number of these studies is that those microbes and those viruses in particular have not been seen for some time and uh, could pose a threat because we we don't know what they are so there is a concern that they could uh, even cause a a pandemic or, or something of that kind and this is something that's kind of informed by a lot of science fiction, really, in terms of our prevailing views of these things, and whether it bears out uh, scientific fact is, is open to considerable question.
1: So, interestingly, the the viruses that they uncovered, uh, I believe there was a, something called a Pandora virus and a and a Pac Man virus. Were these the kind of things that are dangerous to us?
0: No. So um, these viruses have fantastic names. I, I do always like viruses because they have some most amazing names. Um, but even as scary as something called Pandora virus sounds, it, it is absolutely, entirely, positively harmless to you and me. It is only a threat if you are a soil amoeba. So if you're a tiny microscopic creature that that uh, is found in soils all over the world, and is likely being killed by its viruses regularly within the soil. You know, there are ten to the thirty estimated virus infections that go on across the world at any point in time and any second. Well, that's an impossibly huge number. A huge, huge number. Out. And you know that that's. That's, include, that's dominated by viruses infecting microbes in the environment, particularly microbes in the sea, that's where that figure comes from. We just don't really know about soil, we can assume, because there's lots of microbes in there, lots of soil, uh, of soil viruses as well, that there's a huge number of virus infections of soil microbes going on. Not only is this entirely natural, entirely harmless to us, it is actually essential for the ecosystem function of these environments that there are viruses there killing off microbes, and releasing the carbon and nutrients inside those microbes. So it's entirely fine. So to be very, very clear, there is no public health threat from viruses that infect amoebae. Whether you find those viruses in the Arctic, whether you find them elsewhere in soil, it's really, really bad news. If this were being broadcast to a bunch of soil amoebae, yeah, the, the listeners would be right to be worried. But to us, it's fine. It is illustrative, though, of just the weird and wonderful world of viruses and microbes that's out there just how really ignorant, and I say this with great level of humility as somebody who's dedicated his professional life to understanding microbes and viruses, the great level of ignorance that we have about these things. Um, it's very, very difficult to do a David Attenborough-type documentary on these things and to, to bring them to life. So, yeah, it does sound scary, particularly with a name like Pandora virus, but, yeah, the the actual public health concern is is zero from those particular viruses, and they illustrate the the lack of knowledge that we have. Yeah, so so the ones that we
1: mostly found tend to be these kind of harmless, mostly harmless viruses, uh, unless you're an amoeba. Um, but there is there is a small, very slight chance that there could be some some nasty things frozen. Is that correct? Like things like smallpox. Is that is that a concern that we might find a body or a, a carcass? you know thawing out and a reindeer might come across it for example yeah
0: so so yeah this this is an interesting one to consider and it's helpful to just put smallpox next to the pandora virus uh, as as an example here so viruses are obviously very tiny and they are very simple in construction but there you've got two of the most complicated kinds of viruses in terms of their structure that you've got and the reason we can go back and and pull out these amoebae infecting viruses, the Padora virus, the Pac-Man virus, and so on, is they are made from very tough constituents that allow them to survive for a very long period of time. Smallpox is also quite a tough virus, but it's not as tough as these amoebae infecting viruses. So it has, on its outer layer, it's basically a little fat bubble. It's called an enveloped virus, and then inside that there are proteins, and inside that there's the genome of the smallpox virus. So while smallpox is... You know, amongst the world of human pathogens, quite a tough virus. It is nowhere as tough as these amoebae infecting viruses. And you know, when when people have looked back at frozen samples of of these viruses, that they, they are perhaps stable for decades. And you know. Is it, the the longer term storage becomes very unlikely and you know the, the last you know case of smallpox was uh in Birmingham i believe in something like 1979 so you know that the, the we we run out we run down the clock on that one quite well at the other end of the scale, then, you've got flu, which, of course, is infecting lots of people right now. Um, and we're concerned about avian influenza because it's infecting lots of birds right now. The, world all, you know, the, 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 the spread of, of avian influenza is causing real concern to, to veterinary scientists. And that's a much smaller virus, and it's a much more fragile virus. And so this is where the story kind of really began, was with uh, researchers looking into permafrost to find victims from the 1918 pandemic of the spanish flu and so the, there's just kind of like three attempts that were made and the, the big one was to go to a place that i now know very very well called longyearbyen uh, up in Svalbard which is about a 1000 miles from the north pole and it's technically impossible to die in longyearbyen and quite simply that's because there's no way of burying you in longyearbyen because they would be digging into the permafrost which is thawing very very rapidly so you know you can be immortal as long as you stay in longyearbyen but Going back a century, going back to 1918, there were people being buried in permafrost there, and the, there were Spanish flu victims being buried in the permafrost. And there was a major effort in the 1990s to to go and and safely, you know, lots and lots of precautions taken to go and extract and exhume some of these victims to see if they could recover traces of the virus. And this this failed totally. Um, it was impossible to do. And the techniques that we have for looking for viruses and, and trying to, to analyse them have come on in leaps and bounds. And, and in the 1990s, there were techniques that allow you to, to really sensitively detect tiny traces of the virus's genome, and they couldn't even do that. So if that was gone, the viruses were totally gone. But this brought people out to the shadows a little bit. And they were, it, it transpired there'd been an attempt in the 1950s as well, which, you know, the past is a different country, but there was a researcher who was doing his PhD uh, who went to uh, Alaska? I think basically like with a shovel and a surgical mask, and and got the permission to to exhume some people who died from the Spanish flu. And um, in those days, to to cultivate viruses, um, as still is the case for for, for flu and, and making flu vaccines, you you would inject them into uh, fertilized eggs. And there's this wonderful photograph of this guy having collected samples from a, a victim of the Spanish flu, and he's siphoning. Samples of this person's lung and pipetting, mouth pipetting it into into the the eggs, and I use this photograph when I teach new students about lab safety because it is absolutely lab safety one one. You, you would not do that, you know, for for anything for tap water, um, let alone a virus that killed, you know, estimated forty million to one hundred million people, depending on on which you know kind of thing. So it was dead. It was very very dead in nineteen fifty. Um, so I, I think the chances of Either smallpox or Spanish flu coming out from frozen storage in in permafrost or, or places is uh practically zero
1: <laughs> just, sorry I've still got that image oh
0: well, I've got no hands free I guess
1: I'll just have to matter. um that's that's I, I, you'll have to send me that image that's uh, quite something so it's a good excuse then uh to just sort of talk about viruses a little bit and how are they able to do this kind of resurrection act? is resurrection even the right word for it because i mean it's there's this you know question marks of whether we can describe viruses as alive in the first place but ha- how are they able to just sort of sit somewhere for hundreds of years and spring back up and but you, you've hinted actually they aren't as tough as we maybe think from science fiction anyway
0: yeah so that they've some of them are very very fragile and you know they they become inactivated i mean in in Local parlance, I'd say they, they die, but you're right. Viruses are not strictly alive; um, therefore, they're not strictly able to be dead. But um, you know, outside of a, a living cell—a cell that they're able to infect—they are inert. And if stored carefully and properly, they they can be infective for a very, very long period of time. But you know, that's within the controlled situation of a lab. It's very different than in terms of you know something that's died and and you know has been buried in the soil or or, or something of that kind. But to recover them, there's there's kind of two ways that can be done. And there is the classical way, which is attempting to isolate and propagate the virus in cell lines and in live, artificial cultures of living cells. Uh, or I mentioned hen's eggs there for the influenza virus. That's you know very well-established techniques in virology. But there was a really interesting paper coming out from a team based in the US in something like 2014, 2015, where they'd gone to Arctic Canada and they they've found these uh, environments which they call ice patches. And these are not conventional glaciers. They're just hollows and depressions in the ground which collect ice and store ice for periods of time. And it's not flowing like a conventional glacier. But because they, they persist year-round, they're often really literally cool places to hang out for wildlife. So reindeer and caribou like to go to to these places to avoid biting insects, which is then wonderful because... If you have a diet that's subsistent on caribou, you can go and hunt them there. So, um, you know, there's a a rich history of the animals using these ice patches and there's also humans hunting them in in these places. And in Norway, I've visited some of these sites where you can literally see a half metre thick layer of reindeer dung has been collected for over 5,000 years, but also archaeological artifacts from, you know, hunter's arrows and, and spears and stuff coming out with it and, and things like that. But these researchers in Canada went to one of these ice patches and they took a, a sample and they did something very different, which was not to try and grow the viruses directly, but instead to sequence viral genomes. And then you can effectively, once you have the sequence of something, use, uh, I'd describe it as a mail-order company. It's a little bit more nuanced than that, but to, to mail you artificially generated copies of that. Um, and so they, they, they spied what they thought were viruses amongst the sequences that they, they, they looked at and went, oh, that looks interesting. We don't know what it does, but we'll get it through the mail-order company and then we'll just try infecting things uh, until it grows in something. And so they had a guess that one thing could infect uh, insect cells. So they tried with insect cells um, and then they tried plants for some other things. And to me, that's actually posing some more concerns because your virus genomes might be a lot more stable than the infectivity of the virus themselves. So they, they might be harmful for longer. But also this is then taking it out from the very remote, low population density, 4 million people live across the entirety of the Arctic into a lab that might be in the middle of a major city and, you know, the, the way that you do these infections is to take the, the genome that's been reconstituted, treated in a particular way, into a and needle and inject it into something. So to me, that's, that's a little bit more sketchy. Um, so we do need to have a, a debate about what's appropriate in terms of actually literally re- resurrecting viruses that are not just unculturable by normal means, but are, you know, fragmented and only recognizable by genome sequences that we don't understand.
1: Yeah, you're just you're just seeing a a sort of a formula for something that you have a rough idea, and then you go ask someone to make it in in the middle of uh, Massachusetts or somewhere. <laughs> it's also a really good opportunity to talk about your particular area. I mean, you you studied the you know microbiology in the Arctic, but a, a little bit more uh, generally, which is sort of obviously the Arctic, like everywhere on Earth has its own set of microbes um or its own particular makeup of microbes and um you know these are i guess coming out of the the permafrost as it melts into the water system what what do we know about what what basically we're likely to see as the uh, arctic melts what what do we know about the kind of microbes that are being released and how they're going to change
0: that ecosystem and i appreciate as i ask it that's an absolutely massive question it's it's a critical question to ask actually because we really do need to appreciate that microbes govern so many of the biological processes on this planet you know every second breath that we take is using oxygen from marine plankton it's not just the trees that we can see. It's the invisible stuff that's out there. And the Arctic is is just the same in that microbes play really key roles there. The thing is, though, that because microbes are very numerous, they're very small, and relative to the other things that are growing and living in the Arctic, they can respond to change quite quickly. So, you know... Uh, the generation time of a polar bear is measured in years, the generation time of a microbe that um, might be growing in the permafrost once it's able to resume growth might be measured in days, weeks, or months. So they are often the first things that respond to change in the environment. And that change can be just a few degrees between something being just below zero and frozen and just above zero and there being liquid meltwater. So they're really, really sensitive indicators of changes in the Arctic. For that reason, but they they're not just indicators of change. They're also, unfortunately for us, um, things that drive feedbacks and the change as well. So they can amplify that change. And this was a um, an idea that was put forward by a really great paper um, published by a researcher named Warwick Vincent um, in 2010, which describes Arctic microbes as sentinels and amplifiers of climate change. And so there's the that second side of it, amplifying climate change, where they. Govern processes which um, then can run away and contribute further to climate change. So, you know, really key ones include all that carbon that's stored in the permafrost. Not just the you know minuscule amounts of carbon represented by viruses <laughs> stored in the permafrost, but everything else that's buried there—the soil organic carbon, vast, vast quantity, something like uh, a third of the, of the world's soil carbon—is is up there. That's been carbon that's been locked away and stable and cold for a long time. But if something comes along because it's warmed a little bit and it's warm enough to breathe that organic carbon out, convert it to carbon dioxide, and that's putting it into the atmosphere. So that's a, a, a carbon feedback there. But of particular concern is, is not just carbon dioxide that can be emitted through that process. Um, other microbes can release methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. So you, know, you, you, you get to these environments and they're, they're literally belching out Methane from the ground because of microbial processes there, which then drives further climate warming and the thing that 's really alarming about the Arctic is of course everywhere is warming, but for a long time we've thought that the Arctic is warming twice as fast as, as other parts of the planet, but it's probably closer to three or four times and and parts of the Arctic, such as the part where I mostly work on Svalbard is probably closer to seven times uh, faster warming, so it is really concerning because that change then enables these microbes to kick back in and um, cause problems downstream.
1: So it strikes me as a, a massive undertaking to try and understand this when you think about the, the numbers, the sheer amounts of microbes and and the, the different places in the world where you can c- collect these and understand them. Could you kind of give a snapshot of how we actually try and understand what you've just explained, how, how we actually can get a better picture of what's going to happen as these microbes were released and start munching on things and belching out carbon
0: yeah so um to try and understand how microbes are changing the Arctic it requires balancing between going to the Arctic and then doing uh clever things in labs and the 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 way that this has conventionally been done is researchers from outside the Arctic go to the Arctic and um, collect samples, take measurements, set up experiments. And some of these experiments are wonderful. They're, they've been going for years, sometimes decades, perhaps simulating the impact of uh, climate change and then comparing what's going on. And then they, they return samples back to their own labs and they analyze them. And different techniques are used. So there's some very sophisticated approaches uh, in DNA sequencing that are very relevant to, to understanding this and you know, just trying to stitch together the the genomes of the organisms that are found in these environments give us some insights into what their potential metabolism is, what their um, contributions to the carbon cycle might be, uh, how vulnerable they might be to climate change, but also not just that, but actual experiments aimed at understanding how they function under different conditions. And a lot of this stuff is is of fundamental interest because if the Arctic weren't changing, it would be important to study it because we need to understand how life survives in the cold. But we've got this additional challenge now later on top of it. That cold is 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 going away, and it's going away, with, you know, in large parts over the rest of the century. So, um, yeah, we have to work across different scales, from understanding what's going on inside uh, an individual cell and, and the genome inside that cell, through to its microhabitat, which might be a few millionths of a meter in size, through to um, you know the test tube scale size, you know, little experiments in the lab, through to the field scale experiments where people are sort of going out and watering plots or uh, adding carbon dioxide to it then to the entire Arctic. So there's a huge scaling up thing being done there. And a lot of what we've been doing in recent years, um, accepting the pandemic, has been to try and bring things together so that that sophisticated DNA sequencing approach, you don't have to bring things back to the lab anymore. You can actually take that with you to the field. Um, so it becomes more efficient to to do in the field and, and reduce the carbon impact of the work as well. Because you know, running running cold labs and running uh, ultra freezers is uh, really carbon intensive. Not just the f- process of flying there and back as well.
1: And and do you are you able? I'm going to sort of share my ignorance here on on these sort of DNA sequencing techniques, but. Are you uncovering or, or discovering new microbes that are new to science, and that because I know obviously there's a there's a big area where we're we're sort of studying and trying to discover new microbes that might be useful all the time? And I just wondered, is there the same sort of emphasis out there in the Arctic that we might discover things that you know are really good at? I don't know, eating plastic or that, that's yeah. obviously a bit of a pipe dream. But
0: so every time we do a DNA sequencing experiment I get the initial results back and you know a large percentage of what I'm looking at just comes back as unknown and uh, that requires a lot of effort then to try and dig in to see what that actually is and it's often many many different things and some of the things I have to be content with are, are unknown now and will be unknown for a long time and it feels a little bit like the early days of astronomy. You, know, you, you, you recognize a few constellations out there, but there's a, a vast galaxy of stuff that is just not on our radar. So it's an important um, part of the work to actually try and build our reference databases better so that we, we can actually recognize things as, as what they are. Um, and that's really slow, painstaking work compared to you know, the, the, the horrors of going and wading through you know, hip deep snow and arctic blizzards and whatever whatever image people have of arctic scientists, uh, the hard work is actually you know the painstaking stuff of building up these reference databases. So there's always new stuff out there. Um, some of that may be useful. You know, if if a, if somebody asks me, you know, so what, what Why 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 should we invest in this research? I, I, I have to say, the next penicillin could come from a glacier or it could come from the permafrost. We we only benefit from having a better understanding of the the diversity, the biodiversity of these places. So yeah, there's there's a lot of interest in terms of finding things like the next penicillin, but also more everyday things um, like uh, biological washing powders. So if you've got enzymes in biological washing powders that work at lower temperatures, then you can save the energy and the carbon that goes into that process. So it makes it more efficient. And by the same token, lots of industrial processes that use enzymes as well. If you can optimise those to go ahead at ambient temperature rather than needing to be he- heated to 30, 50, 60 degrees Celsius. You're saving, right now, a lot of money.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I and I wondered, are you, when you uh, have these samples, are you also able to look at them and find out a bit more about, perhaps, the sort of time that they were frozen in?
0: Yes, yes and no. So um, we can split these habitats into... Two components really. Um, there are habitats which are, are deep frozen stores of things. Um, and there may be some changes that occur. Um, even in the coldest frozen environments, there will be some changes that occur because there are things that that can still be active well below zero degrees Celsius. But the rate of those changes are really slow. So they can reflect um, much more of the conditions when when the organisms were inoculated into that environment be it through snowfall or burying of, of um, organisms within soil and so on um, but there's also a huge range of habitats which are highly active and um, you know they're still living they're contemporary organisms they're doing contemporary things um, and so the surface of the soils the surface of the, the glaciers and of course into um, lakes and rivers and streams and and the sea; those are very active contemporary environments. Um, so, it's interesting to consider the boundary between that life in the slow lane. I will never say that it's zero. Right, uh, you, know, the, you know, deep frozen, absolutely locked away, life in the slow lane, and then bang into the fast lane of the contemporary Arctic, which is melting very rapidly. So, um, we can get clues uh, from the kinds of organisms that we see, and um, the you know we can reconstruct the, the population dynamics of these things and and what environments might be like and there's a a wonderful paper which has just come out in nature which i really do need to read very carefully where researchers have gone to the bottom of the green ice sheet and they've been able to reconstruct what the habitats were like two million years ago because they could still just about get some dna out of it and do a lot of clever things with that and see you know that they were mastered on and you know that kind of thing um so yeah you, you you can learn a lot by by sequencing things from the arctic
1: yeah, it's a, it's amazing how much that technology has unlocked. Really, where you can kind of shotgun sequence big big volumes of stuff. Um, uh, just lastly, then I'd love to get your kind of anecdotal view because I know you've been heading out to the Arctic for some decades now, and I think it's sometimes I I, I know, you know, from personal experience, just seeing these places, I think really strikes at home how how much they're changing what what's your take on it and particularly i suppose because we're talking about microbes in, in a way it can be easy to think of them as just you know buried and u- invisible but they are actually at least as, as i understand it they are actually changing things like the tree line for instance in the arctic wh- where that starts and where life starts What what's your uh, view on it over these these few decades
0: yeah so I was really fortunate uh, to kind of stumble into Arctic science around 2006. And um, I've been going regularly to the Arctic and other cold places since then. And so I, I still feel like I'm very new. Um, and when I talk to people who have been going for many decades, um, you know, they've got their own stories to tell. But what I th- think frightens me a little bit is that in that 15, 16 years, I have started to see some really significant changes in um, the Arctic environment. And, you know, the, the thing that's frightening about that is it's such a short timescale, um, you know, not, not even a, a lifetime, but part of a, a, a scientist's career. And, um, yeah, it's sometimes little things like rain, and it's a nice, beautiful, sunny day here um, in Aberystwyth at the moment, chillingly cold, um, but sunny. Um, But sometimes our sunshine comes in liquid form here in in West Wales. Um, So I'm no stranger to rain. And when I first went to the Arctic, the rain was a different kind of rain. Uh, And it was sort of large spots here and there. And before you knew it, you were soaking wet. Um, Now the rain is much more Welsh in its character. So it's sometimes little things like that. Or the conversation with a wonderfully um, experienced true polar hero uh, named Nick Cox, who until recently ran um, our only research station in the Arctic. Um, and, you know, when I was going there for the first time, I said, you know, dress for a cold day in the Scottish mountains in summer, uh, plus four degrees Celsius. And, um, this summer I was walking across the tundra. Um, and I was just realizing that my field gear was just far too warm for me. It was, um, up at 16 degrees Celsius and it's crossed 23 degrees Celsius there, um, recently. Um, and, you know, I've just come back from the Arctic. Um, I was there doing work in Polar Night, which is the fastest warming part of, um, the, the calendar in the Arctic and um, I was amazed to find temperatures um, of about plus four at its warmest and um, you know this is in 24hour darkness. Um, it should be below zero well below zero there should be snow on the ground. Um, but it was instead it was rainy uh, and it was dark and I was wearing the kind of clothes that I normally wear walking around in the summer uh, traditionally in the summer. So, um, yeah, the, there's a lot of variability in the climate, um, that you have there. Um, but when you start to talk to people who've worked there for 20, 30 years and you encounter something strange and you say, have you seen this before? And they say, no, this is nuts. And was, you know, I've, I've heard that so many times in the last year. This is nuts. Um,
1: and they're quite, they're quite a reserved, well, they're slightly mad, but they don't say that lightly, do they?
0: No, no, um, no, there's, there's, um, There's very little tolerance for people that over-egg these things. So I'm always trying to be quite cautious in in what I say. And, you know, I I would emphasize it can rain, say, on Svalbard any month of the year. But the the frequency and the intensity and the duration of these events are are changing. And so, you know, when you put things together, the the rain has changed. Um, The fjords are no longer freezing over. There's, you know, heat waves um, in the Arctic um, that are, frankly, terrifying. Um, and I've, I see the glaciers being absolutely hammered by this. I was working on one site um, this summer where I was able to visit it in March, um, early July, and in August. And you know, just between early July and August, we'd put some poles in, standard technique to measure how much melt was going on. And the poles had all melted out because there was well over a metre of melt within about 40 days of that. Um, so, you know, pretty intensive melt, which is from a small glacier um it's not going to appreciably raise sea levels globally um but it's really a barometer of of the kind of conditions that you know we we can expect to see elsewhere in the arctic and, and you know as the planet warms so it's concerning and it takes a toll actually um I now no longer regard myself as a biologist of the Arctic. I'm more of a pathologist of the Arctic. It feels like every time I go to these field sites, it's a little bit like turning up to a crime scene.
1: That was Dr. Arwin Edwards from Aberystwyth University talking about the meltdown of the polar landscape. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius Podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com.